This episode is brought to you by HealthMate Saunas. After much research and study into finding ways to increase my energy, all answers pointed towards incorporating saunas into my recovery. Infrared saunas differ from traditional saunas because they warm you from the inside out. Saunas provide deep relaxation and boost that energy through increased blood flow and also cleanse the system, release toxins and provide a deep detox. For me, I use my sauna at the end of a tough workout or after a busy working day. And of course, having the sauna conveniently in my house removes all obstacles of making it part of my weekly routine. I simply plug in my HealthMate to the usual household plug and I'm ready to go. But why is a HealthMate better than any other infrared sauna? HealthMate are the global market leader in infrared saunas and have been for the last 40 years. They're the only company to offer a patented infrared technology which guarantees that infrared penetrates deep beneath the skin, critical to getting our health benefits. They only use green and sustainable materials on their saunas and are the only company to offer an unconditional lifetime warranty. Personally, I have a two-person cabin, but there are a variety of models, shapes, and sizes that can work for you, all available at health-mate.co.uk. Go to their website to get yours. This is Take Flights with Mark Whittle. Welcome to Take Flight. I'm Mark Whittle, former city worker turned performance coach, and this is your place for inspiration, and education on ways to optimize your performance and find your purpose. The most powerful force in the world is to be consistent with your identity. If the shoes don't fit, take them off. You can lie to everyone else, but you can't lie to yourself. You need to trade your expectations for appreciation. You know, we only live once. When all is said and done, the only thing you have left is your memories. The guest for episode 121 is multi-awards winning comedian, presenter, actor, author and scriptwriter, Russell Kane. Russell is amazing. I travelled to his house to record this episode and although I loved him before we spoke and was a big admirer of all his work, that admiration certainly grew since we had this conversation. As a comedian, Russell is one of the best in the world. He was nominated four times for the prestigious Edinburgh Comedy Awards before winning Best Show in 2010. He was then the first comedian ever in history to win both the Edinburgh Award and the Melbourne Comedy Festival Barry Award in the same year. And I can certainly see why. But it isn't only his style and delivery of comedy that impressed me. He is by far one of the hardest workers I've ever met. So committed to his craft. He spoke to me about numerous occasions where he's done nine or even 11 hour round trips to perform for 30 minutes to an hour just so he can get on stage. He's incredibly intelligent, incredibly articulate as you're about to hear. And this conversation had a profound impact on me. We spoke all about how we create change for ourselves and how we break not only our individual daily habits, but how we break generational habits. Russell's advice and story can help so many people and I'm honoured to be able to share it with you today. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy with one of the best comedians in the entire world and the first episode in season 13 of this podcast with Russell Kane. Russell, welcome to the Take Flight Podcast. Hello. I can't believe you're in... I mean, it's the first human being I've had in here doing anything in months. It feels really weird. 
Oh, well, weird in a good way. Yeah, I was in theatres. That's been weird being inside theatres. But then having someone working house, you feel like you're doing something wrong. Even though we're like jabbed up and stuff, it's become taboo to be near a human being. So that's so weird. Mate, I, I feel the same. Although I started doing face to face probably about five or six weeks ago. Well, here we are. <laughs> I'm going to start off with saying I've had a number of people saying that we look alike. Really? Yeah. Well, I get, I would say between five and 10, you look like my mate messages a week, <laughs> sometimes more. Some dude, who, who I think he's the goalie for Argentina, Emilio Martinez or something. So I get him. Yeah. Uh, David Schwim was obviously in the news. So I got that all week. I get Nick Grimshaw once a day, maybe on Twitter. <laughs> so I've got to the point now where... I just resign myself that I look like a lot of people. Yeah. Some of them are really shit. I'm like, you look exactly like my husband. It's like really insulting. It'd be like some <laughs> bald fat bloke who's about 80. But yeah, it happens a lot. I look like a lot of people. So there we go. I used to get Milan Barros. Are you a football fan? Not at all, no. Uh, he played for Liverpool for a while. Right. I get a lot of footballers, but yeah, the, go the goalie for Arsenal is who I get. But Nick Grimshaw is the most frequent one to the point where I, obviously because he's in the same sort of line of work to me we get muddled up at events and things like that so that must be frustrating not really it's because i just use it for comedy material and then talk about it on so it must be frustrating for him getting muddled up with a bell end like me <laughs> <laughs> i read that you looked into your dna and like your background where you came from yeah when did that curiosity start well my family tree ends in living memory so my mum was raised by my great nan so my mum was raised by her nan because my nan was you know uh, not at the most stable point in her life so she was out having other families and enjoying Smirnoff or whatever <laughs> other brands of vodka are available and fucking were as well so I think my mum until she was about 15 lived with her nan my great nan who bless her through sheer force of will just lived on till I was about 19 to make sure I was in a good place as well so my great nan was a massive part of my life that's why she's up there on the shelf so she doesn't know where she came from. So when you grow up with someone who doesn't know where they come from, it's a mystery. So like if someone who helped raise you is an orphan, you want to solve mm. the mystery. So I just wanted to solve the mystery of where this my orphan great nan came from. Now, she always said that her mother was a maid called with the surname Bush, a German surname, B-U-S-C-H, and that she was impregnated by a Spanish count who fled the scene uh, and gave the baby to a family in North London to be raised, but he always sent money. She was raised by this family. And I said, Grandma, because that's what I called her. I didn't call her great-grandma. I said, Grandma, can I get your birth certificate so I can see? It was burnt. It was destroyed in a fire when Queen Charlotte Hospital was burnt down. Queen Charlotte Hospital did burn down. So I just assumed till I was about 21 that my grand was telling the truth. I didn't want to start digging shit up while she was alive. When she was deceased, I found out that her birth certificate hadn't been destroyed. Her birth certificate was real, and the person who gave birth to her really was called Bushk. That's the only thing I knew to be true. So then I was on the trail to try and find out, well, who got her up the duff? Where did she come from? She was raised by a random family in North London that she had no relationship to, that weren't a rich family. So it wasn't like a rich family that needed kids. They had five of their own kids. So why would you be taken in by a family that already has five kids mm. in three rooms in North London? So someone was giving money to that baby to be raised. So I've always wondered. All of her story proved to be true. So I was like, it's going to be Spanish DNA. Not one. Not one drop of Spanish blood in me. No Italian blood. Nothing. 
48% British and Irish, 48, 52, exactly like Brexit. I've, I've got Brexit <laughs> DNA. And the rest is just a mix of German, French and other Northern European DNA. I've just got very dark colouring, but I don't know why. Huh. So not to go too deep straight yeah. away, but when I was very young, I was told my biological dad left when I was very young. Yeah. So my daddy brought me up, who's my hero and has sort of taught me all about the personal development world, taught me everything I knew about goal setting, routines, all that sort of stuff. He's a life coach as well. But I was told he wasn't my biological dad. So I had this curiosity from the age of five of like, well, fuck, you know. You'd why already learned three Nigerian dialects by that point. And you were like, how are you not my dad? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's actually very close to a Lee Mack joke. Sorry, Lee, if you're watching. <laughs> um, yeah, so we had that. And then I had I looked like my mum, like the spit of my mum, and I looked like my granddad. Have you got Spanish or Italian or something like that? This is why I asked you, because I've never gone down the path of actually finding out. You're definitely too dark to be 100%. Mm. British, same as me. Maybe there's some resistance there from me, I think, to yeah. really find out. So. Just, so run it on 23andMe.com and you'll just see your ethnic profile. So I was disappointed. I was hoping for something much juicier, like I was a bit Ghanaian or something just fucking amazing or <laughs> Sri Lankan or just something I could really talk about. But I'm just a complete milkshake. So there'll be a lot of, obviously, German from the German made. There's a bit of Jew in there. There's a bit of uh, Bavarian German. So they can be quite dark in Germany. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just a milkshake, really. Yeah, it'll be a milkshake as well then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to do my best not to burst into fits of laughter during this chat. I was watching some of your stand-up yesterday. Oh, my God, mate. I was actually in tears, crying. In a good, like, happy tears. Yeah, it's been good to get back doing it, to be honest, because we only opened on May the 19th. So but I've squeezed in many hours of stand-up since then. I travelled six hours last night to do eight minutes. That was my commute, love to it. do eight minutes on stage. Uh, it was a fundraiser. It was unpaid for Calm, actually, which is a brilliant charity. Yeah. So, yeah, it was great. Uh, and it was just, I just love it. I just, that is where I feel at home on stage. I love all of this. I love doing TV. I'm on TV, daytime TV at the moment of all places. And I'm loving that. Of course, I love the panel shows and being on chat shows. I love all of that. But I love most of all being on stage. 100%. That's where I'm supposed to be. Interesting. I, I did a very long journey the other day to do a face-to-face -face podcast in Plymouth. But I don't think people would expect that from you. So you did six hours driving? No, it was, I went by train. I travelled by train. So yeah, train and taxis to get there. And then, of course, you got to get there an hour and a half before the gig. So the actual time I left, I left Leeds at three o'clock and I got back in my door at half 12 last night. It was worth it. Yeah, so it was great. It was 80 people in the audience, but it's being streamed as well. You can probably watch it. I just, you know, I tailored the set. I made it all about mental health and men and all that. I just loved it. But then the other day I did like two hours a night in Grimsby. And so that's the other end of the scale, just doing way, way too much content. You know, I'm just completely hung over from being funny the next day. So Russell, part of the podcast Take Flight is about learning about the leap of faith people took into the success that they've now seen, right? They didn't know at the time, yeah. but they took a risk into something. Yeah. So from what I've read about you again, you were, and I actually loved what you did previously, but you were in marketing, you're in a marketing agency, but you decided to ultimately take that leap of faith. So I'd love to hear the story of you being there and deciding to actually go full-time and have a, have a go. Yeah, so we have to start further back really, because if I came from a privileged middle-class background, it wouldn't be such an amazing thing that I was working as a copywriter in an integrating advertising agencies, what we, I used to call it to try and big myself up. You're absolutely right. It's mar marketing, if you think about it like, if you think about it like a species and then a subspecies and a family, the way taxonomy is done, marketing is the big thing like animal kingdom. And then underneath it, you've got advertising, PR, you, they're all different families. So we were sort of... Uh, 
an integrated advertising agency. What that means is we did the very like low end of advertising terms and conditions, win a flight with this Snickers, things like that, as well as a couple of tele adverts and big billboards and branding. So I did a bit of everything and I loved it. But people watching this who might have been a bit luckier in their background to me might not be able to realise the jeopardy of leaving what's quite just a normal job, really, even though I loved it to do something like this that I'm doing now. But to get there... That really was the bigger leap of faith, I think. There were two massive leaps I had to make. The Still the number one predictor at the time of recording this. Hopefully you're streaming this in like 2035 and laughing at how things have changed. But if you're streaming this in 2021 or 2022, time of recording, the number one prediction of where you'll finish in life is not whether you visit a personal development coach or whether you listen to me or whether you eat right, it's where you're born. That's the number one thing. So if you're born in a council estate to a single parent and your mum earns nine grand a year, that is 80% likelihood what sort of fate you're going to end up with. And that is, that is a right kick in the nuts to everyone that you, you you want to appeal to with this who thinks they're in control of their destinies. But the reality is the 20% that are watching this have already made the hardest decision to make that change, Shamon, as we used to say before Michael Jackson turned out to be a bit dodge. So it's and a bit of an illusion that you're in control, I'm afraid. But we can make change, though. It's dominated by people like us that have the strength to do it. So people like us that have that little extra genetic fucking quirk that enables us to make that change, Shemon, dominate this environment, giving the impression that anyone can do it. The sad reality is... And we're made different with different energy levels, with different chemical balances in our brain. Lots of people will attempt the journey and, and many will fall. And it's just a statistical fucking fact that cannot be got round with any amount of positive thinking that even if you watching this and go, well, you're talking shit, I've done it, I've done it, you've done it. Where you are born and it's disgusting dictates where you end up. So we need plenty of personal development stuff like this mixed with real structural change in society it can only do so much people like you and i getting working class people and going you can do it just like us and if you're already pregnant at 19 and you've got two kids and you're fucking working on a minimum wage and you're eating a shit diet you probably won't even be able to finish this video we've made before you fall asleep and your day starts again that's the world that's the world a lot of people live in they're at the bottom of a pit you can't just throw a bit of string down and go grab on so that frustrates me that that's worse than when I was 18, that situation. So you're more likely now to be trapped from where you start based on on the social. So what I'm saying to people watching this is don't feel bad if you're watching this going, fuck off, I'm knackered. So you've got to get past fuck off, I'm knackered, find a way through it. And that's what I had to do. So I was born to a non-divorced household. That was my first thing that saved me. My mum and dad were un undivorced. Yes, I grew up. My first home, my very, very first home, in fact, was a mother and baby shelter. So my mum and dad were homeless because they realised we weren't going to get housed. So my mum sort of evicted herself from my great nans, made herself homeless thinking we'd get a council house and we didn't get one. So my mum's given birth and we still got nowhere to live. So I was in a mother and baby shelter. So my dad had to go to work and just visit the shelter at night. So there's other women there. Most of them were domestic abuse victims or junkies or whatever. So my mum was like a normal working class mum, but I happened to be in a shelter. So I went from that to council flat to council house. So I grew up bog standard, council estate kid, incredibly bright, 
loads of energy, definitely different to everyone else. Did it make any difference? Did it fuck? There I was at 16, no GCSEs, weed over the park, trips, MDMA, you name it, I fucking ate it. I didn't inject anything or snort anything, but I, I was like fucking hungry caterpillar through whatever was going. And that was it. I was done. I was cooked. Spat out the system at the other end, exactly as I've described I was working class kid, not as bad off as all my other friends who were still in the tower blocks who were doing more manual labor. I was working in a shop, which is a cut above manual labor, selling Rolex watches. Nice little income, 10 grand a year basic wage, 1% commission. Maybe I was earning 14 or 15 grand a year, which was a lot more than my friends were earning. And that's it, I was cooked. You did that all week and then you went clubbing at the weekend, hard house, going your tits off, depression till Tuesday, repeat. Decided by the system. And I was the brightest and most energized out of my friends. And there I am cooked at 18. This is where the one element that's always missing from personal development courses comes in. You must acknowledge it. Luck is part of it. It doesn't mean you can't control luck. You can. If I, I would totally push people to a book by Richard Wiseman. Uh, about uh, Richard Wiseman's a, a popular psychologist, really easy to read, very engaging. If you're working two jobs and you're knackered, get the audio book, listen to it instead of listening to music. It's an amazing book. You can make yourself more lucky. I don't mean you can change your lottery numbers, but what I mean is you can have more luck and it's about changing your mindset and your outlook. So they run an experiment. They got people who describe themselves as unlucky and people that describe themselves as unlucky and put them in a room together. Do you know this experiment? No, please tell it though. Yeah, so they, said on here before. they told them that in this newspaper is a hidden box and the first people to see it win five pounds. Right. So they're going through the newspaper. Page two was a full page advert that said, it's a trick. Don't listen to the experimenter. Stop reading now. Hand in your newspaper. Receive the reward. All the unlucky people missed that page. Oh, I'm probably, I bet I'm never going to find it because in their heads, they're already losers. I'm never going to find it. The lucky people are like, what the fuck? It's a trick. I'll have my fiver, please. Mm. So what I'm saying is there's a lot of luck. You know, you didn't turn your head. You didn't see the 20 pound on, your, on the floor. Your friend did. That's not because your friend's more lucky than you. That's because his eyes are more open. He's got that meerkat mindset where the, I don't mean the brand meerkat, I mean the looking around. That's something you can control. You can turn your head more, you can look. So there I am, six in the morning, Strawberry Sunday's nightclub, full like, uh, ready to go home. Had a, one too many sherries. And through the smoke comes this girl, one inch taller than me. Looks like she's just come off a catwalk, dark hair, skinny, like the, that drawn look that was in at the time, model. Look, I never dated a bird that like I was single at the time. I mean, I had one girlfriend. I'd slept with one girl. She comes across, no words, puts her number in my hand. So she'd obviously been just washing me, da dancing all night or something. And just like just like the look of me or like my personality, because I'm always up the front dancing. I've got this landline number on a bit of paper. <laughs> I've called it the next day. Hi, oh, yeah, my name's... Uh, I'll change your name. My name's Chloe. And then we just start dating. Start shagging. I fall in love like after, like, I think after like one snog, I'm in love. I love you. Like that 19-year-old love. And this is where the accident comes in. This is where the luck comes in. She had just left home because she was doing her first year at university. So I'm working in the watch shop. So the system is gamed against working class people. I don't care what colour you are, black, brown or white, the system is gamed against you if you start from a poor background. And I'd lost. I'd lost at the table. So I'm waking up in halls every morning. And instead of walking out of halls and getting on my train, I did do that. I'm watching this girl. It caused a few problems in the start of our relationship. Wandering out, 
to sit on grass and read posh books like you got behind me and ponce off about what Jane Austen was talking about and then roll off to a lecture, get pissed at night, no commitments. Her dad was a builder, but had bought her private education. So there's nothing genetically superior about her. And I'm like, oh my God, the whole thing is a trick against working class council estate kids. I'm... I'm not being horrible to my ex. Clearly brighter than this girl academically, so far as maths and English and all that go, which I've done nothing with because you got bullied if you did well at maths and English at my school. So I had an A, a B and three C's, just enough. And I went to work, I think maybe like the third time I'd kipped over at hers and I wrote in my diary, fuck that, I'm going to do that. I'm going to get a degree. So I went home that night. I sent off for A-levels through the post. By now I'd had a row with my dad, so I'd gone down... An accommodation level. I was living in my nan, the alcoholic one. I was living in her council flat, housing association, in a box room. I didn't even have a wardrobe. I had to hang my clothes on the wall and stuck on hooks. I was actually travelling home with a knife at this point because I had an altercation with a, a lad opposite. Nothing had happened, but I just I thought something might, which is stupid. But I was walking around with with a knife on me. And uh, so it's pretty about as far as you can go. You're living in a council flat in a box room, carrying a knife to go to work, getting stoned on the way to work, stoned on my own. But I sent off for these fucking A-levels and I did them every night. And I redid sociology A-level. And I thought, all I've got to do is get to 21 and you're counted as a mature student. So the threshold drops. That's another little life hack. If you fucked up your GCSEs, if you wait till you're 21, you're counted as a mature student, but you're not. So you can still party with the 18-year-olds, but you get the benefit of the academic breaks. So I only needed one A-level. Aced that, got an A grade, got the fastest ever A grade for sociology at that point from enrolment to sitting the exam. I had to sit the exam on a table on my own, separate from the local college. The invigilator could see me and the other students. So I'm on my like special peasant table. Aced that, went to uni. By now I was unstoppable. It was like someone had punched Mike Tyson and he was like, hang on a second, I've got the harder punch than anyone who's ever hit me. Got a first, every module, first for my degree, the only first for that year for English and media. That's the biggest leap I've ever made in my life. That. To go from smoking, raving, this is what we're supposed to be. I actually wrote in my diary, I'm going to diet. I wanted to die at 40, not because I was depressed, because I thought I want to absolutely party and then go from an overdose. Not in a purpose overdose, just die on in the sea in Ibiza or something. Why would you want to live past 40? I don't want kids. I don't want to get married. I just want to fucking get off my tits and sell watches. That was my life plan. And I went from that to, no, I'm going to get a first in English. To leave the stable working class job selling jewellery, which I was good at, to live on £50 a week, poncing about with the books you see behind me. At this point, I wasn't like, oh, I always read as a child, but I never did anything with it. I never read anything. I didn't know who Jane Austen was. I didn't know who Charles Dickens was. I knew what Macbeth was because we'd done that for GCSE. That was it. So I had to not just read the texts to get a first in English with the posh kids at uni. I had to catch up with all the books I'd never read aged 11 to 16. These books behind me are alphabetical. Jane Austen there, uh, all the way through. That's Evelyn War, all the way through to Emile Zola at the end there. A to Z, he's French translated. So I was getting up at six before my first lecture and I read... I'd read a Jane Austen, I'd finish that, then I'd read a Charlotte Bronte. And then when I'd read that, I'd read uh, maybe uh, um, Arthur Conan Doyle, Dostoevsky. I went A to Z, back to the beginning. So I started to be able to talk intelligently in the student bar. I had no vocabulary. I didn't know how posh words were pronounced. I was like some fucking Afghan teenager without English. I could speak working class English, but I couldn't speak middle class English. I didn't know what 
any words meant. Nothing. I had to learn them from scratch. And I'll never forget the first word I encountered was in the first book I read that wasn't on the syllabus, which is Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice up there, the one with the blue spine. And I said, every time I encounter a word, I don't know, I'm going to collect it on an index card. And I'm going to learn that word. And I won't use it on purpose, like a bell end, but I'm going to wait until the first time it occurs to me naturally in my brain. Because that, that's like when you're learning French or German, then you know you're actually speaking it. So the first word was impudent, funnily enough, considering the, the boldness of what I was about to attempt. Of course, didn't know how to pronounce impudent. If you know, you never heard anyone use it. My friends don't talk around that. Spliff is somewhat impudently rolled. You know, it's not something. <laughs> so is it impudent? Is it impudent? You can make a complete dick of yourself with the posh twats. So I had to learn the diacritic alphabet because Google, although the internet was there, you couldn't you couldn't press the translation, the speak out loud button yet. So the diacritic alphabet is all the marks that sit on top of letters which guide you in how to pronounce a word. I had to learn that. So once I learned that, I knew it was impudent with the emphasis on the first syllable, which you would never guess from reading the word. It looks like impudent. So I'd have a little, I had a dash on the im impudent then i learned the cognates of it impudently impudence the nounal form the adjectival form the adverbial form and that was one card i collected i think three and a half thousand cards i know all those words and i would do them on the toilet while i was walking people thought i was revising for exams i wasn't i was manually expanding my vocabulary like steroids and I was so guilty about it I was so embarrassed that the cards were buried in my room behind a hidden row of books and I burnt them when I graduated because the thought of anyone seeing them it was like my language wasn't really mine I was like a fake sort of thing like like a fake Rolex it wasn't real and I didn't want people to think if they heard me say walk into a room and use the word impudent I was just showing off and I was using language in a fake that's what you call a leap of fucking faith uh, you know, leaping from do it, the fact that I then, because I got such a high mark on my degree, and it, yes, it was English, but it had, it had a commercial component, media writing. So I was picked out from my degree by the advertising agency, which was amazing. So I'm now sat on pink fluffy couches. I've got pedigree cats. I'm thinking up shit for a living. I've got funky hairstyle and weird shirts. I'm, I'm a middle class creative professional living in London. I can't believe it's happening to me. But to go from that to stand up, don't get me wrong. It was, you know, to say to my mum, who's still at this point scrubbing the toilets of the rich, I'm going to give up this job of work. I've, I'm the first person in my family to get into marketing. I'm going to give it up to try stand up. It was a risk. It wasn't that much of a risk because if I fucked it up, I could go back and do marketing. I could, I could go back and do advertising now. So, yes, there was a bit of a, a risk in doing it for six months and I could have lost my flat and I could have fucked up my mortgage and I only I had saved six grand and when that ran out, it ran out. That was a massive gamble, but sat on top of a brilliant career in copywriting. That's nothing compared to putting yourself, putting yourself through uni, generating all that debt for what? To know who Jane Austen was. That was the leap. I absolutely love that. Thank you, mate. I also feel like because you did the first leap. Yeah. Maybe the second one felt a bit easier. But this is what people don't understand about privilege. The second leap was easier because I then had privilege. I had a degree. I had a flat in Clapham worth 280 grand. And I was sat on eight grand of savings. So I knew I needed 300 pounds a week to live on. So I had 12 months of security to try stand-up. I would have known by 10 months if this was not a career. I've been doing stand-up and working at the same time. So I was doing 12-hour days at the agency, then getting in my car and sometimes driving three hours to do 20, 10 minutes in Manchester and driving home again. It was dangerous, really, to my health. 
and I was just about able to do both without the quality suffering in the first year. By the third year of doing both things, quality was suffering. Not on stage, I was getting a reputation. Who's this new guy who's still got his day job? But my creative director was like, mate, you know, you're taking the piss now. You're looking tired. You know, we've got big clients, Vodafone, Carlsberg, you need to be fine. So I had to make a decision. I had five years of agency experience. So it's kind of you to call it a leap, but we must acknowledge people who are leaping with a little safety net of cash and degree privilege is different to the leap of someone that's got nothing and no one and a mum and dad that's saying you're on your fucking own, you've got no support, which is what my first leap was like. I got no support at university, not one penny from anyone ever. My dad gave me a fiver once when he was pissed at the end, in my second year, that's it. We are talking about really coming from a particular location is conditioning. So what I understand about conditioning is that we're brought into a world and our mindset is shaped by the people, whether that's teachers, parents, sports coaches, friends, whoever it is around us. Our mindset and our view of the world is shaped by that. And if you imagine like a ski slope, <laughs> talking about privilege, imagine a ski slope. Yeah, exactly. But the, the fresh powder is, you know, there's grooves that go in that fresh powder for the first time through. And if you think of that as a thought, the more we have that thought, the deeper that groove gets, the deeper that groove gets. And then we start to look at it. And that's what that experiment essentially demonstrated yeah, is yeah. that if you're not looking for those things, of course, you're not going to be lucky. Yeah. But I have to believe, I have to believe that the moment you hit, had in your ex-girlfriend's room when you suddenly realized yeah. what is available to you, you know, there's a quote, you can't be what you can't see. You suddenly saw there's something else available. There's something else out there. there. And I think that your story here or any other piece of personal development uh, content can help with that person going, fuck, I can do totally it. Totally agree. We've got to acknowledge how much damage can be done though. So I wasn't damaged. Yes, okay, I had grew up and it was just drenched in drugs where I grew up. It's not my mum and dad's fault. We'd lived in a perfectly nice, we bought our own council house. It was just fucking drugs everywhere. And you're not taught that you can get a degree at my school. It just wasn't a thing. It was never mentioned. No one ever mentioned, even mentioned A-levels to me. I didn't even know they were a thing. So that's the environment I grew up in. Had I been sexually abused, beaten, taken heroin when I was 14, if I was a girl when I got pregnant when I was 15, it is much, much harder. You can see stuff. You can see them all day long. If you do not have physically have the resort, I'm not saying I want to live in like a Jeremy Corbyn socialist state because I don't, but if you do not have the strength and resources to get there, we're all, we're all, we do have different strength. By the time we hit 18, 19, we've all got different things have happened to us. And I was had a great childhood really you know I was never beaten by my dad I never went without a meal we started to go on holidays when I was 12 abroad a lot of people didn't get to do that and I think sometimes people like you and I particularly we have to realize that there can be it's the equivalent if it was a physical disability no one would go just get out of the chair mate just get if, if I've smashed your fucking legs with a hammer since you were 12 when you were 18 and then went well if you just look for stairs You'd think it was absurd. And I think sometimes people, because it's hard for us to imagine if we're full of strength like I am, can be so broken that they can see the the grooves and opportunities all day long. They literally can't get out of the chair. They're, they're, they're damaged. There. They might need help first. They might need financial support. I think there needs to be more resources. And then I think people can follow this. I, I realise I'm talking about extreme cases. And a lot of people are like you, just wasting, you and I, wait, wasting opportunities that are there. But there's this hard crust of people that we need to show like more compassion for, I think. Yeah, no, I 100% I, I agree with you. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Interested to know from your perspective then, that period when you went to university and just grafted and worked and, and just 
did it yourself, you know, put the whole world on your back, independent, head down. Was that you changing your conditioning or was that you, had you been conditioned to hard work already? Because you, you mentioned earlier, like your dad worked and bought the money in even when you're just born. Yeah, there's definitely that. There's definitely a graft till you die philosophy. That's all working class people though. There's nothing unique to me. Anyone who's grown up like that, you know, my dad was very suspicious of benefits and all of that. There's a distinction in the working classes between those who sign on and those who don't. There's a snobbery there. So we, we, I was what we call upper working class in the end. So definitely in there. But I would say it was closer to anger, what I experienced. And anger is very powerful. You shouldn't be afraid of it. We spent a lot of time doing like mindfulness in the morning and then getting rid of anger. I would say be careful with some of that shit. If the anger is not causing you to put your fist through the wall and mess up your relationships, maybe try and use it a bit more. I was furious. As I say, it caused a lot of problems with this girl who I was deeply in love with because I was jealous and angry of the, of the way I'd been treated by the system. I wanted, I wanted to hit back. And every time I learned a new word, it was like punching some posh fuck in the face. Every time I got a higher grade than everyone else, it was like winning a fight. So there was an aggression there. There was a fuck you there. There was like, I'm the toughest kid. No, I'm fucking daddy. No, there was a bit of that. Uh, that's what gave me the energy to follow the hard work conditioning. So was that a, because I'm the same, by the way, I had anger for... Yeah. most of my life probably until the last couple of years yeah and i played football so i had sport for, to yeah. channel that somewhere as well and yeah. then when i stopped playing that's when i was like fuck what do i do with all yeah, this yeah. but i think you're absolutely right anger can be the best fuel how has that changed then what because because it hasn't it hasn't have you seen me on stage <laughs> yeah <laughs> i just thought i've used it energy is my thing something switched well, everyone talks about nervous breakdowns when i lost it no one ever talks about we need a new phrase it's not a light bulb moment. It's not a, a realisation moment. It's a form of madness, but in the other direction. Something broke that day, or rather something joined. That day when um, I wrote in my diary, I'll never forget it. it was, I'd had a, a row with Chloe, as we call her, that morning. I'd got on my shit train in Tottenham. She was in the Tottenham campus at Middlesex University. I'd gone into work. And it was like every... Not the people who were overseas, because a lot of my clients, when I was selling watches, were foreign. That didn't affect me. What triggered me was when it was posh dad with son coming in to choose his Rolex. I wanted to hurt them. I wanted to fucking replace the son. That, what is that? How could that not be there the day before and be present? Now, if I'd have gone negative and in a chair and had to have antidepressants, you'd call it a, a nervous breakdown. So what is it when it goes in the other direction? It's not a manic episode because it's been sustained for 23 years years or something 20 years it's a nervous break up but that still sounds like something snapping mm, i think it's it's like a it's an energy shift it's it's an energy shift a perspective shift permanent though physical it wasn't like a oh let's make a note in my diary my, the way i look at the world it, there was a physical energy something just shifted and i did not change my lifestyle very unhealthy still on it every weekend so you can't say i was looking after myself no exercise eat shit all day long burgers pizzas crap still smoking a spliff on the way home but after i'd done my a-level homework <laughs> and um so now it's the same how can i get that commissioned how can i be the best i can be on stage last night for my eight minutes i think that's the difference though yeah. because like i it was all from anger and it was like almost like a fuck you but not just fuck everyone you know yeah. i'm gonna do i'm gonna do this by myself yeah and I'm going to prove everybody wrong. And now it's changed to, I just want to, I want to prove it to myself. Yeah, there is that. Yeah. I still retain a little bit, prove it to everyone else, but that's the nature of my business. 
comedy is very dangerous, I think, if you just want to make yourself happy. You need to keep yourself quite low status and the audience above you make them cynical in your mind. I have great relationships with other comedians, but you need to pretend cynicism around you. So that you're, 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 it's probably something to do with my dad. You're always displaying to someone that is naturally there in a healthy way. I don't know, for ever since that day, I just, if I put my mind to it, if I want to write a novel, I will just go through it in six months and write it. And it's like, it is a form of madness, but a good one. Where would you have been without that? Do you, do you think that was inevitable? It was going to happen for you at some stage? No, I, I absolutely don't because I, I don't, if I hadn't seen the inside of it, how else would I have seen the inside of a university? I was getting in with this girl's pass. It was going in and seeing it. I went to A-level college, Hartford Regional College, and we just fucking did so. I did more trips there. Um, LSD, I mean, that I didn't get any A-levels, obviously. So I'd seen what a college environment was like, sitting around, but it was, you know, people with baseball caps on and it was rough, you know, it was more like a, a borstal. So I'd never seen this sort of gentle, you know, lecturer with the glass on the end of their nose, people with cider being posh on the lawn. And I went to some of her nights at the uni. I went on some of the nights out. There's no threat of violence. There was no, no one getting punched. It was like... I was big into like racial unity and all that because of the raves I was going to. So, you know, I was into all of that and I saw the intellectual version of that. So it aligned with my personal politics. It started as I just want to do this for three years. Imagine getting out of bed at 10 a.m. for three years. I couldn't believe it was possible. And all I had to do was psychotically study sociology. Of course, sociology was probably the worst thing I could have picked. I picked it at random off a website because I thought, oh, well, I'm class. I'm sort of interested in that because this posh bird I'm seeing. Of course, it made it a hundred times worse. When you realise that where you're born, how you're born, if you're born female, if you're born black, you can do a hundred million personal development coach courses. If you're born black, you're going to be pulled over by the old Bill more than I am. And there's fuck all you can do about it. You can personally develop your ass out of the world. You will get pulled over. That is not fair. It's, I can't bear stuff that's not fair. And the fact I was born on a council estate meant that I was something like 85% likely to end up earning a similar amount of money as my dad. That's not fair. It ain't fair. And I thought, fuck that unfairness. I, I, I want to try and do something about it. That's so interesting. If I reflect back on what my anger was from it was the same thing like decisions made before i was here or capable of making them for myself yeah. it's interesting though because these systems if we want to go bigger picture it's like the government the societal experts everything yeah. we just landed in this place with you know all these people who have made these decisions beforehand so how can we operate happily and optimally within that you know, still having anger and frustration towards that, but how can we be... You need to do all those th things that we're doing, and then if you've got the energy, be involved in some of the other stuff. I, I mean, the conversations are happening. Me Too has happened. I think men will absolutely think twice before making some dodgy joke about a girl's boobs in the office forever from now on. And maybe they'll think twice about paying women less just because she might get pregnant after you've employed. So those things are already happening. I get it. It's not... If I've been born a woman... I'd be earning less as a stand-up. How the fuck is that? That's totally ridiculous. Even if I was just as funny. How is that fair? It's not. It's stupid. It's, like, it's thick as shit. In 200 years' time, people will laugh at us as fucking cave people because we pulled people over in cars because they were brown. I mean, how thick is that? 
Exactly. So are these conversations happening? Black Lives Matter. In my industry, yes, I know we've gone a bit mental and everyone whines about it online. The pendulum will swing back. The conversations are happening, so don't worry about that. In the lifetime of people watching this, those things will sort themselves out. The one thing that I can't see being sorted out is the the social mobility gap. That's the next one, I think. That's the next Me Too. That's the next Black Lives Matter. I'd love to, I'd love to be involved in that because obviously when it comes to Me Too and Black Lives Matter, there's only so much I can say without looking like cringy white man trying to get in on it. But if it comes to social mobility, poverty, whatever that label it gets, I'm going to be there with my fucking placard in this because finally it's my time to get angry about those injustices. And I think that there's a lot to be said for a bit of unity between groups that have all been given short change at birth. I'd like to carve us up a bit. And um, I was reading an article yesterday. Unfortunately, it came from a Tory place, the article, saying that terms like white privilege are holding poorer white boys back because it's putting a divide between poorer children of colour and poorer white children. I don't think that divide should be there because if all the people that have less got together... And we're like, I don't care if I'm white or I'm black or she's female and I'm not or you're non-binary. We've all been shortchanged here and now we're going to make a change. That's it. Then you'd see the order rebalance. I really, maybe I'm naive or blinded or rose-coloured glass or whatever, but I, I just, I really believe that anyone can change their circumstances. Oh, anyone can. Anyone can. Up until the point where there's, there's chemical um, developmental damage in the brain. I mean, I don't talk about my brother much, but he's obviously an incredibly extreme example. He did not survive the system I went through, and he's still very ill to this day. He doesn't even live independently. Is it because of the system? No, I mean, it's because of the social milieu is what I mean. I don't I don't mean like that someone... Like Boris isn't pulling levers to hold the working man down or anything like that. I'm not like a mental conspiracy theorist. I just mean he didn't make it through. He, he didn't have the natural academic ability I had. This is the other thing that never gets addressed, the difference between introverts and extroverts. That is genetic. There is nothing you can do about it. You cannot read a book and change yourself from an introvert into an extrovert. What you can do is read a book and work out how to optimise the introvert's amazing talents and skills that bellends like me don't have. We as a society need to get better. If we're in a brainstorm now, and there's six of us filming this and we were talking about personal development brainstorm. I guarantee it'll be edited. So all my shit sounded amazing. And it looked like, you know, Lottie didn't have anything good to say because we have a prejudice towards people like me who are really good at once they get going, speaking and making a thought sound good. So we need to get better at harnessing talented, introverted people in the school system. So my brother just sunk to the bottom. He just didn't do well at school. He didn't make friends as well as me. Obviously, so when we both hit the rave scene together, he w w went chemically a little harder than me, maybe. And he just, he just, you know, he just fucked his life he, he, to the point where he's literally never worked. You know, he doesn't live independently even now. He's really, really, really struggling. So there are natural genetic things that do make a difference. If I was too shy, if I'm so shy that my face goes red and I have a panic attack at, if I'm trying to present my CV in a meeting, that is an issue. And it's an issue that's hard to get around by reading an engaging book or watching a blog. It's all having the self-awareness. Like you said, if you know yourself to be introverted, go and read Quiet by Susan Cain. Amazing and, and book. That's the book I'm thinking about when I'm speaking. Cool, yeah. So, you know, the best book about being introverted. And also I've spoken with a lot of introverts who might 
seem extroverted. Yeah. Not you. <laughs> but <laughs> seem extroverted on social media, but actually behind the camera, they're really quiet. But there's something special about that as well, that when they do speak, everyone listens. But it's, it's the extroverts that need to read Susan Cain's book. Yeah. It's true, because yeah. the problem is, the problem is we're not... You've seen it in the last year. Chris Whitty goes on telly and everyone makes fun of him because he's, he's a bit like... It's like someone sort of put Harry Potter in a melting machine. <laughs> he, he looked, or Dobby having a panic attack, whatever it is. The loudest, most charismatic politician doesn't necessarily have the best ideas. But I think this would come back Newsflash. to media, commercialism, yeah. fucking clickbait, all this bollocks, yeah. because people just want you to mainstream tabloids and all this. That's what people class as important. And it's almost like you need to tell people to stop reading that shit, stop giving importance and placing importance on yeah. that content. It's tough though. You know, I think we've had mass change in the last 18 months with the pandemic. And as you said, you know, me too before that black lives matter so the reality is the poorer you are the more female you are the blacker you are the bigger the tools that you describe are, are going to feel in your hand those tools are available to everyone but they feel a lot heavier when you pick them up if you're a poor white boy like me or if you're a black woman from a poorer background same tool on the floor go and pick it up why is it so much heavier in my hands so the, you, it doesn't mean you can't lift it. You just need to, we need to, we need to check out our own perceptions when we're telling, oh, go on, mate, anyone can do it. It's like, well, we're not all the same. The society's not set up the same against us. So just so I'm clear on what you mean by the tools, the way I'm, I'm understanding that is if we said to every single person, regardless of background, here's a gratitude practice, here's an exercise schedule, here is affirmations, here is a book that, you know, relevant for you and gave it to all of them, can they all improve their lives? Yeah, they can all improve their lives. What, but what I mean is they go to use those tools. If the tool was, let's just keep a really clean example. If the tool was Richard Wiseman, going to look around for more luck. Yeah. And we all go out of the house, three of us, posh white bloke, poor white bloke with a shit accent like me, and uh, Afro-Caribbean mum in her 30s. We're all like that. We see the opportunity. I tell you now, we're not going to be received the same way if we walk into Goldman Sachs or a marketing agency or on stage. I'm telling you now, it's not the same. So I've seen it in my own eyes. Speak to any female comedian. They, they followed everything to the letter. I was like, I'm supposed to be a stand-up. They pick up that mic on the first night. They go on stage. They are received differently just by being female. A lot of the time by women in the audience. Oh, where does she think she is trying to make my bloke laugh? Mm, that, yeah. So do you see what I mean? Yeah. They've used everything you've said, uh -huh. but when they've gone out there, because of where they're from and their level of privilege or lack of it, it doesn't mean it can't be done. Of course it can be done. It's done all day long by lots of talented people. But you just, that's part of it as well. It's not all you. There's a world out there waiting to go, wait a minute, you've got a scumbag Essex accent, you ain't selling my watches, which I which I which I had, which I have had. Thank you so much for joining us. There was so much in that chat to digest. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Do you agree with Russell and his philosophy on the working class, race, gender, and everything else that we discussed? And can we truly change? Does our postcode and genetics dictate large parts of our future? Some huge thought-provoking topics and I'm so grateful to Russell for sharing it all. We actually split this episode into two parts. Part two coming soon, where we discuss Russell's second leap of faith, getting into stand-up comedy. 
including how it started, how he eventually left the safety of his job to pursue a full-time career, plus how to construct a joke and make it funny. It's arguably more insightful than the episode you just listened to, and I can't wait to share it. In the meantime, stay positive, stay motivated, and take flight.